Welcome to The Meaning of Life, a teaching series with Pastor Mickey Bryce from Center Stage Church. The Meaning of Life is a 10-part study of the three letters from the book of John. Now, here's Mickey Bryce. We're going to continue this series, The Meaning of Life, and uh, we're in chapter 2 of the book of 1 John today. Uh, the idea here is uh, we're going to talk about two things, knowing Christ and doing His will and what that means. So it's called knowing and doing. So have you ever, have you ever known a know-it-all? Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, Jenna, the wife, says, uh, I'm leaving you. Ben, the husband, says, is it because I act like I know everything? Jenna, the wife, said, yes. Ben says, I knew it. <laughs> uh, there was a rather pompous-looking deacon who was endeavoring to impress upon a class of boys the importance of living the Christian life. Why do people call me a Christian, the man asked the boys. After a moment's pause, one youngster said, well, maybe, sir, it's because they don't know you. Mm -hmm. All right. So uh, not too long ago, 10 years or so, uh, there was a movie that came out starring Nicolas Cage, and it was called Knowing. And it was kind of a sci-fi thriller about a bizarre scenario in which the sun destroys the earth and the aliens appear to save some people from annihilation. But it was about knowing the future and knowing what's going on. Today we're going to talk about knowing, knowing Christ and knowing what he did, knowing about him. Um, we're going to also talk about doing and what that means for the Christian. We're going to see that God cares very much about who and what we know. And he cares even more about our doing the will of God as we understand it. We've already seen that John's first letter was written for the purpose of encouraging Christians. So because the Bible was written to those people, but it's for us as well, he's writing it to us. We can read it in the same way that those early believers read it, and we can be encouraged. And I hope, I hope every Sunday when we talk, that you are encouraged by something. I don't, don't depend on me, depend on the Holy Spirit. And if you listen to him, he will encourage you because learning more about God and discovering something new and having that touch your life enriches you. And that is not just an intellectual thing. It's a spiritual thing. And it will, by definition, encourage you. So, so far... Um, the first uh, century Christians have uh, listened to what is maybe one of the most theological books in the New Testament, along with the book of Romans. Not that they aren't all, but it's deeply theological in 1 John. Uh, so far, John has sought to explain the incarnation. We talked about that. God became a man. He then, in chapter 1, stressed the importance of walking in the light. We talked about that last week. And he's explained the bond of love and fellowship that exists between believers. That is his church. Both the church universal and the church um, local. Uh, in chapter 2, God, uh, John continues to encourage and teach. 
And we're going to move on to some very interesting um, uh, points of view. I want to present something quite simple to you today. Uh, here it is. The, there's two confirmations of faith in Christ. Two confirmations. We know who God is and we do his will. People say to me, well, I hope when I get to the end of my life and from there on it's not true. Don't hope. Hope is not wishing for something. I mean, it is in English, but not theologically. When we say what is our hope, it is a surety. What we can take from this passage today is there is a way, John says, to know that you have eternal life. And what is that way? Look at your life. If you know Christ personally, it will always result in your doing the will of God. Now, it's not like 100% record because we fail because we're imperfect. But the evidence of your faith in Christ is always doing of the will of God. So the problem is sometimes we don't know what the will of God is. Hang loose. We're going to get to it. Those two confirmations of faith, knowing Christ and doing his will. Look at your life. Do you see that you know about God? Not just knowing about God, but when you know him, you're going to learn about him. Are you growing in your understanding? Second is, are you doing the will of God? Well, that presumes that you would know the will of God, but that's, go, go back to point A, okay? Knowing the will of God and then doing it. Turn with me to 1 John 2, the very beginning of chapter 2. These are wonderful words. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's good. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Hallelujah. He is the propitiation. There's a big word for our sins. We'll get to that in a minute. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. Here it is, the proof. If we keep his commandments. Hmm. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But for whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. Let's pray together. Father, holy cow, I can't even begin to approach what I need to be and do, except intellectually. I know I can't do it on my own. I know none of us can. Thank you that you give us the strength and the wisdom and the intellect and the power to do this because of your Holy Spirit. It is possible because of Jesus. Help us to understand that 
We need to get into the arena. We need to begin to understand what the will of God is. And then it's a very simple process. Do it. Sometimes that is hard, God, because we don't really want to a lot of time. We think it's too much trouble. Or surely, God, you don't understand the complexities of our situation. And we think of all kinds of reasons why maybe tomorrow would be a better day than today. Help us to set all of that aside and hear you speaking to us. And I can guarantee that there's not a single person in this room who doesn't need to follow the will of God more clearly, more courageously, more succinctly. Thank you for the freedom to learn in our churches about what the Bible says. And then I pray for the strength and understanding and courage to do those things. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as we said in chapter 2, John begins by restating his purpose so that Christians may not sin. That's a pretty good purpose. But he knows we will. So let's don't make a mistake that there's been anybody that did this perfectly, except Jesus. God knows that we will eventually and occasionally sin. That's not to say that we can't do what he's asking here uh, in large measure. It can be done. It is hard. And there's a fine line between trying harder and absolutely resisting and depending on God. And then the next thing you turn around, you do it out of the flesh and you have to start all over again. So it's hard. This is the hardest thing there is about being a Christian, except maybe actual suffering, physical suffering. Before we get into this, let me remind you that John is writing to a, a congregation of believers. So these words are not like for the nations. This is for the church. And if you're listening to this podcast and you're not a Christian, please understand that these words are directed to those people that already know Christ as Savior and are looking to understand what their responsibility is. I hope everybody in this room is in that category, but it may not be the case. Lots of times people say, well, I thought I knew the Lord, but really when I came to him, knowing it was when I fully understood and I made sure. Okay, great. But this, is it's not, when you study the Bible, it's particularly important to understand the audience, the context. Context is king. The context of these people is that they already have a relationship with Christ, with God. They have already believed, so to speak. In our terms, they've accepted Christ as their personal Savior. They've become a Christ follower. They understand what God did. The context of John's teaching is the same as if he were here today talking to you. Hey, folks. Here's the deal, okay? Take it or leave it. Please take it. Teaching believers in Center Stage Church by John. Wouldn't that be kind of cool if you could tune into a podcast and, hi, I'm John the Apostle. That'd be kind of cool. Um, so, here, as well as any biblical church, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> um, 
We teach the Bible in order for people to know Christ first. None of this makes any sense if you don't have a relationship uh, of salvation with Christ. So it starts off not knowing about God. It starts off knowing God. Now, some information about God must be made known before you can come to know him personally. But knowing the work of Christ is the first step. What is it that God did on the cross? We've already talked about it. We talk about it every week. We talk about it. That's the only thing we should talk about generally. We believe that when you know him and who God is and what God has done for you, that knowledge will affect your behavior. Show me a Christian that that knowledge has not affected that relationship and knowledge hasn't affected their behavior. And I'll show you a person that hadn't understood it. Always, he wants to change you to be more like him, less sinful, more dependent, just like Jesus. The evidence is legion through both testaments. So these verses are teaching a number of truths about Christ. Once you know Christ, learn the work of Christ, the nature of him, and that will encourage your faith. And the next time you turn around, you'll be faced with a decision about behavior where you call on this knowledge. That's what maturity is, that you can make the right call in your life and please him because you understand first and then you obey. Okay, trust and obey. You remember that song? Here's the truth. Courtesy of John the Apostle, here's what you should know. Number one, verse one, sin is inevitable, even for the believer. When we come to Christ, we don't stop sinning. Now, the, the payment for our sin has been made, so God doesn't hold that sin against us. But that's not the same as saying that we don't sin. When we first started the church, I was doing a series. I can't remember what it was. We had this man who uh, came forward in the service. We had an invitation uh, that day. And he introduced himself to me. And I, again, I'm not saying this to make fun of somebody, but I'm saying some people don't get it right. And he said to me, a lot of da da I like to get involved in your church. By the way, I'm perfect. I said, have you shared that with your wife? <laughs> and I was trying, I thought he was kidding. He said, I, I, and what he meant was, he had it wrong understanding of what perfection in Christ means. It is true that when God looks at us, he sees the perfection of Christ in our, instead of our sin. That's true. But it doesn't mean that we don't sin. So it sounded kind of funny. Um, in fact, uh, first he went to Rob. This was right after Rob came to our church. He went over to Rob. You remember this, Ellen? <laughs> and he said, by the way, I'm perfect. And Rob didn't miss a beat. Rob said, you know, you probably need to share that with the pastor. And that's why he came over to talk to me. And <laughs> I said, thanks a lot, Rob. Uh, sin is inevitable, even for the believer. Ask anybody who walks with the Lord and you will be aware of your missteps. We know what sin is. We know when we do it, most of the time. 
Sometimes we're unaware of it. John understands that even in the midst of his desire for Christians not to sin, it is inevitable that we will sooner or later. Now, make no mistake, that sin does not separate us from God any more than the sin that we've already been forgiven for once for all, all of our life. We don't have to keep asking for forgiveness. We do have to keep confessing that to Christ alone in order to walk with him in order to maintain our relationship. We talked a little bit about this last week, this whole idea of confession, and that confession is not something that I only say to a person. If somebody comes to me and say, by the way, I'm an ugly person, I've done all this stuff, I say, have you talked to God about that? That's what I would say. I can't offer that person anything except biblical understanding. The whole idea of somebody in clerical something offering, hearing confession and all of that, that's somebody made that up. You can't find that in the Bible. You do find that we should confess our sins to God in order to be cleansed from all unrighteousness and that we should confess our sins one to another, which in a way simply means to agree with one another that we continue to sin. Just the point we've just made. Okay. So, Sin is inevitable, even for the believer. Verse 1 continues to say that Jesus speaks in our defense, and now all of a sudden we're transferred, we move to a courtroom. John paints a picture here about what happens when we sin. And again, we're talking to believers. When the believer sins, here's what happens. He uses the word advocate. Christ is your and my advocate if you're a Christian. Uh, We're all familiar with courtroom dramas. Uh, One of the first shows that Zao Theater ever did was uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. 10 or 12 of you were in it. It was a really wonderful, we love the moment of the trial. The lawyer, in this case Atticus Finch, stands up, delivers his uh, defense of the accused, and uh, we've seen it all a thousand times. It makes great TV drama, et cetera, et cetera. Well, picture all of that in eternity or at, at the moment of your or my sin. The word for advocate in Greek is really translated helper. He is our helper. That's not to belittle his nature as God. It's simply to say that he's there to speak for you. Here in 1 John, the word advocate best describes what Christ does for you and me daily. It's not talking about the forgiveness of sin permanently. In other words, coming to Christ. It's talking about the relationship of fellowship that we have with Christ on a daily basis. When we sin, that fellowship can be broken. Our salvation is not taken away. But walking with God is hindered by our sin. We can't walk with God if we're sinning all the time. At that moment when the Christian sins, whether he realizes she realizes it or not, Christ stands as advocate. Picture that now, okay? Why does Christ need to stand as advocate? And the reason we'll get to here in a second, he speaks on our behalf Not only are we redeemed by Christ, we are kept by Christ, sustained in faith and in fellowship by him, if we want it. So he speaks for us. Who does he speak to? 
The devil is who he speaks to. What does the Bible say the devil is? The what of the what? Yes. The accuser of the, who's the brethren? Brothers and sisters in Christ. What does Satan do? He says, see, see, see what you did? You're not saved. Anything he can do, cheating and lying to you, he does it. Specifically, when we catch ourselves and we go, oh gosh, I'm so, I, I realize I've, I sinned, I did this. What do I do about that? At that moment, Satan loves to come in and say, see, you're not really a Christian. Or see, you're not walking with him. I'm going to tell everybody what you did. Nah, 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 nah. And it, I mean, I'm not making jokes about it. It's bad when he talks to us that way. This is how the Bible describes Satan. He accuses you of not knowing Christ. See, and sometimes then the guilt that we feel happens all over again. Like Atticus Finch on steroids and power, Christ rises at that moment. And he says, not him, not her. I've forgiven this person. Shut up. Shut up. And every Christian that understands this attack can speak directly to Satan in the name of Jesus. Get thee behind me, is what Jesus himself said. You can say that too. Because that same relationship that Christ had with God in terms of a fellowship is ours because of Christ. And that's like pretty incredible. So this is how this works. We become a believer at some point in our life. Our destiny has changed. We go from eternally heading toward hell to eternally and inexorably heading toward heaven and perfect, perfect environment for the rest of our lives. Our destiny has changed because our sin is forgiven by Jesus. Next thing a Christian does is they seek to walk in the light. We really want to. We understand that's what God wants us to do. And we begin to learn what that means, right and wrong. And some of that we knew already. Inevitably, we sin along the way. This is what we've been talking about. When we do, the enemy is right there. And that's when Satan says, see, I told you. I told you you didn't mean it. I told you you're not really a Christian. I told you that pastor doesn't like you. I like everybody. In those moments, picture Jesus. You don't have to picture. I'm telling you, theologically, it happens every time. Christ stands and says, yes, she is. Yes, she is. Or yes, he is. Christ himself speaks for you to the evil one. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, God will not be absent. He will not be absent when his people are on trial. He shows up and he will stand in court as their advocate to plead on their behalf. Preach that message every Sunday and people are going to come to Christ. That's it, folks. Here's another truth. Jesus forgives the unbeliever and cleanses the believer. 
And what I mean by that is forgiveness of sin happens once for all. Because when Christ died on the cross, how many of your sins were in the future? And the answer is all of them. Because you weren't born until 19, whatever it is, 22. I hope nobody's here that was born in 1922, but maybe. So when that person comes to Christ, Christ forgives them. First transaction, salvation, permanent relationship with God. Then the Christian begins to live the Christian life, learning on all of this process. And then when that inevitable sin happens and we stumble along the way, at that moment, God asked us to confess that sin to him and say, oh God, I, I hurt somebody. I, I even meant to, but that was ugly. That was hateful or whatever it was. And God says, it's okay. Christ covered it. Thank you for telling me. That's it. And we get hung up there because we want to reinvent the cross every time. But all it requires is for us. Remember last week we talked about confession just means agree with. Agree with God that I stand. Okay, I did that. Let's move on. And you don't need to beat yourself up. You simply need to remember that it was wrong. And that Christ covered it. And quit acting like that. Best you can. Jesus forgives the unbeliever and cleanses the believer. It says in verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. That doesn't mean everybody becomes saved. It means that everybody can become saved. It's all paid for. Let's see who comes in and picks up the get out of jail free card. Okay. Uh, propitiation is a long word. We don't use it much in our world. Here's what it means. Um, it means to remove the wrath of God toward me. In a few minutes when we close the service, we're going to sing about this. That in Christ, he removed the wrath of God that was yours, had your name on it and mine. That judgment has been pulled away because that same judgment was poured on Christ. That blows my mind. The judgment of the sin of the entire history of the planet was put on Christ's shoulders on the cross. What must that have been like? There's, we can't even comprehend it. Pulling away that wrath is what propitiation means. Sometimes we use a word called expiation. It's another uh, churchy word, but it's got a theological meaning. And there is another dimension to expiation in addition to propitiation. Both of them are referencing this verse. And that is that not only has God removed his wrath, but he has removed your shame. That's a big one, especially in a dysfunctional world. We talk about evil, we talk about dysfunction, and the things that beset us as human beings. Sometimes the greatest thing to overcome is the sense of shame that you have committed an act or done a thing or been away. And that sense of shame, Christ removed as well. That's a place where we get tripped up and we can say, oh, I'm forgiven, but I sure feel guilty. 
And emotionally, we don't get deliverance from that because we forget to remember that Christ took away our shame as well. And because of that, we can stand in the presence of God proudly as a forgiven person. Anybody that's ever been depressed, anybody that's ever been um, psychologically set back by some thing that a person has done that they feel bad about. I've felt a sense of shame. I've been depressed. It's hard. And sometimes we think we need to continue to punish ourselves because that way we show that we meant it. Nah, Christ was punished for us. We can say, I accept it, I trust it, and we can go on. There is no greater thing than that in my mind in terms of mental health. And I don't fully understand all the clinical parts of it, but I do understand the spiritual parts of it. And that's it. He removed his wrath from you positionally, and he took away your sense of shame when you commit an act that's wrong. Think about that. An additional meaning is that the Greek language is that God initiated the sacrifice of Jesus, his son, as an atonement. In other words, it took, it took the payment uh, was made, and at the same time, he's the one that received the payment. He's, he's God. He's the boss. He's the judge. He's the perfect holy one. He has the right to issue such a pronouncement. And he has the right to follow his own holy truth in removing it when he says so, by which method he chooses. We can understand it because it makes sense. Pain, suffering, sin, guilt, put on Christ, he paid for it. I get to experience life and perfection and love and permanent relationship with God because Christ paved the way for that. Well, don't I want that? I have been acquitted on the charge of sin. Everybody in our world is getting accused of a crime these days. Okay? And we're no different. Satan accuses you of a crime. The truth is you are guilty of a crime until you ask Christ to forgive you. And then God acquits you because somebody else paid. It's not that you didn't do it. You're not innocent. You are forgiven, and that's a different thing. You did the crime, but the payment has been made by another. And that's Jesus. In fact, I f- feel no guilt because, God, I have no guilt. That's why I can feel it. I don't have any. It's a lie. It's one of those things Satan does. Knowing Christ is about knowing that. Let's talk about doing a little bit. That knowing business, I get kind of exercised about. You can probably tell that. John now shifts his teaching from the knowing part to the doing part. Christianity is an interesting combination of who we know, what we know, and then what we do. I would propose to you that nothing that fails to influence your behavior means a hill of beans to you. Nothing. The only proof of what we believe is what we do. Not what we say, what we do. 
That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where the proof is in the pudding and all these different things. What you do is the proof or it's the proof of faith. It's also the proof of carnality. That doesn't mean that God doesn't love you if you're not living the way you're supposed to be living. It means you should. Why? Because God has given you the ability to do it in Christ. And it's a whole lot more rewarding than continuing the onslaught of carnality. Knowing is pretty easy. I shouldn't say that. I, I, I did write that, so I'll say it. It's knowing uh, is pretty easy compared to doing. Doing is hard. Uh, the farmer felt called to preach. He sat under a tree and sees the letters P and C in the clouds and decides it means to preach Christ. He sells farm equipment and he goes to preach. He becomes a preacher. He was terrible. After a sermon, a neighbor came up to him and said, are you sure God wasn't trying to tell you to plant corn? I don't know why I told you that. But we'll find some relevance here. It's not exactly as hard as that, although some people try to make it that subjective. John tells us in verse 3 that there is a surefire way to know that we know that we know. And you can look for one particular action in your life, obedience. It isn't obedience to me or to the church dogma or to denominations or anybody. It's, it's to Christ. Obedience of what Christ teaches that we should be about and how we should conduct ourselves. I heard one time that knowing what God wants us to do comes very slowly until we do what God already asked us to do. You've heard me say that a thousand times. People ask me, God, I don't know. I don't know what God wants me to do. And I answer, how are you doing with the last thing he asked you to do? Everybody drops their head, including me. It's tough. So here's another part about doing. Obedience is the confirmation of our relationship with God. It's the confirmation. If you're struggling with, am I a Christian, am I not? Uh, let's challenge you to examine the various things in your life and see if there's an area in your life that you're not being obedient. There is. We all have them. And until we get a handle on that, we're not going to have the confidence of our salvation. But this is how you get it. So don't ask me. Read 1 John again if you need to ask that question. Obedience is the confirmation of your relationship. The Bible teaches that from beginning to end. If you love me, feed my sheep, he told Peter. John writes this, and listen to this. And by this we know that we have come to love him. Oh, excuse me, come to know him. If we keep his commandment, nothing could be more clear. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. It's pretty harsh. And the truth is not in him. So to break the habits of sin and carnality in our life requires a harsh attitude of truth. You got to apply this. It's like if your child kept putting their hand on a hot oven, you would say, no, 
don't do that. And if they kept doing it, not only would they burn themselves, that's pretty much it, but you would spank their hand or whatever it is that you do. And if they kept doing it, that behavior would be harsher and harsher, more specific, faster and faster until you got compliance. Obedience is a hard thing. It means, here it comes, somebody else is the boss, is what it means. In 2023, we have as many bosses as we have people, theologically. That's the problem. What was it that Satan said in the beginning? I will be like God. That's the nature of sin. Every sinner says, I will be like God in that I get to decide what's right for me. It sounds even American. I have freedoms. Well, yes, you do. Given by who? God is what the founder said. (laughs) The issue of morality and Obedience is an issue of sovereignty. And what I mean by that is, I'm not the boss. I have to take orders. People don't like that. We think, whether it be by hook or by crook, at some point, I'm going to decide what I do. Thank you very much. Now, the opposite of that is not another person deciding what you should do. It is God deciding what you should do. And then God waits. And he waits. And he waits. Sometimes he waits a long time for us to do what he asked us to do. And we knew it the whole time. Why do we do that? Because we don't want to. (laughs) Obedience is doing what you may not want to because God said to. It's like obeying your parents. It's a hard thing. It means somebody else is in charge of my life and I must do what they require. Happiness will be found in that obedience. Trust and peace is found in that obedience. If we knew now what we will know in eternity, Everybody would follow God every time because that's the fastest way to what it is we really want, which is peace and happiness and love and all of those things, security. In the 11th century, King Henry III of Bavaria grew tired of being king and the pressures of being a monarch. So he made application to uh, Prior Richard at the local monastery asking to be accepted as a contemplative don't know what that is. It's kind of like a monk, I imagine. Spend the rest of his life in the seminary, in the monastery. Your majesty, said Prior Richard, do you understand that the pledge here is one of obedience? That will be hard because you're the king. I understand, said Henry, the rest of my life I will be obedient to you as Christ leads you. Then I will tell you what to do, said Prior Richard. Go back to your throne and serve faithfully in the place where God has put you. Wow. 
When King Henry died, a statement was written, the king learned to rule by being obedient. That's pretty profound. I'll let you figure out what it means for you. Obedience, verse 5 says, is the completion of God's love. It's the fruition of his love in your life is your obedience. In other words, it's what we call sanctification. It's when you finally get it and are able to manage to do what God asks you to do. Verse 5 is the completion of God's love. The entire plan of God, which begins with his love, is finalized when you give your life to him in obedience. God then can truly, truly use you. And your life becomes a light for others to see. So what do you do before you get to be there? <laughs> you, it doesn't mean people are perfect. We all understand that. What I'm offering is an aspiration and a theological truth that can guide us in the struggle to obey God in every area of our life. I struggle with it. I know you struggle with it. Uh, all of us do. We need to remember these things in order to succeed. I love the words to this hymn. When we walk with the Lord in the light of... This is written for 1 John. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still. And with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. That's what this verses are telling us. There's no other path. Money isn't. Uh, sexual freedom isn't. There's no other way. Power isn't. Trust and obey. Go back to where you rule and rule obediently. So I would say, if you were to ask Prior Richard, he would say, go back to your family and love them obediently. Go back to your church and serve people. Don't quit asking for things that put you in charge of stuff. Go pick up people that need a ride to church. Nobody's going to rise up and call you king for doing that. But it may be what God wants somebody to do. All of these different things. There's an obedience that is trusting and obeying. One of the best ways to learn how to obey God is to imitate Jesus. Learn about him. Read about him. See what he did and do that. Do that. Walk as he walked by faith. Do what he did. Love the Father. Love the people in your life. Live in obedience to what God asks of you. Walking in the light is about knowing Christ and not only knowing him personally, but knowing about him, learning about him so that you have a grounding of what's true and not true about God. And then knowing leads to doing. So I don't know what's the greater need for you today, whether it be I don't know Christ or I don't know enough about Christ, or I'm not doing the will of God. We get tripped up all along the way. This first one is I become a Christian. The second one is I am educated. I am 
I come up in the church or with believers. I'm in a Bible study or I read the Bible every day. I read books and I learn about theological truths because they make a difference in how I view life. And once I've done all that, don't become so heavenly minded that you're no, of, of no earthly good. There's people that are like, all they do is read. They never serve anybody. Something's lost there. Then we're obeying. We're giving. We're sharing. We're working. We are serving, doing, whatever the things are. I don't know what God's calling you to do. But I do know, do you know him? Are you learning more about him? And are you walking in obedience? You have to answer those questions, folks, if you care. So whichever one you're at, there's your assignment. This week, today, ask yourself. Roger Staubach led the Dallas Cowboys to two world championships in the 70s. But he admitted that his position as a quarterback, when he didn't call his own plays, was a problem for him. Coach Landry sent in every play. You can see it. They run in, they substitute, and he brings in the play. When to run, only in emergency situations could Roger Staubach change the play. Very rarely did he do that. Even though we know that Roger Staubach, because he's still alive, considered Landry to be a genius. He was the coach. And when it came to football strategy, he admits... Stop, I mean, yeah, stop. I, that pride kept him from feeling good about somebody else calling his place. So he later said, you know, it didn't work for me until I faced up to the issue of obedience. Once I learned to obey, there was harmony, fulfillment, and victory. That's the way it works. I dare you to try it. I dare you. I triple dog dare you to try it. Acts 17, 28 says, In him we live and move and have our being. Hallelujah. Let's remember that this week. Father, thank you today for the fact that we can know you, we can learn about you, and we can obey you and walk with you. Help us to do that today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Join us for the next lesson in this Center Stage teaching series and tell a friend about the Meaning of Life podcast. For more information about Center Stage Church in Gold Canyon, Arizona, visit centerstagechurch.org.